Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast presented by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman and I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And I'm happy to bring you the special edition of Occupied Thoughts, consisting of a conversation we recently hosted with three esteemed experts, Amjad Araki, Natasha Roth-Roland, and Professor Shaul Magid. In this conversation, we examine how the extremist ideology of Rabbi Meir Kahane has become woven into the fabric of mainstream Israeli politics and policy, to the point where today, Kahanists have been openly embraced and politically uplifted by Benjamin Netanyahu and are now poised to potentially enter not only the Knesset, but the cabinet in the next Israeli election. To watch this conversation as a webinar and to enjoy resources shared with the audience during that webinar, check out our website, www.fmep.org. Now sit back and enjoy the conversation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am very happy to welcome you to our webinar today entitled Mainstreaming the Extreme, How Meyer Kahane's Vision of What of Jewish Supremacy Conquered Israeli Politics. Um, the context for this webinar is that when Israeli citizens go to the polls next week on March 23rd, one of the things they're gonna be voting on is whether to bring followers of Meyer Kahane, Rabbi Meyer Kahane into the Knesset as part of a new party uh, called Religious Zionism. The sudden ascent of this new party, religious Zionism, was basically orchestrated by Benjamin Netanyahu in exchange for its support for keeping him in power, uh, leading one Haaretz commentator to call him, quote, the lobbyist for the Kahanist party. Uh, while Meyer Kahane's Kach party was banned from the Knesset in 1988 for incitement to racism, and both Kach and another Kahanist group, Kahane Chai, have long been labeled foreign terrorist organizations. Um, Kahane's Jewish supremacist agenda has over the years become unmistakably woven into the fabric of Israeli mainstream policies and politics. And now his direct followers in the religious Zionism party who unabashedly promote um, what 972 called his outright racist agenda are poised to enter the Knesset. And I just want to just take a moment here to be absolutely clear. When we talk about Kahanis and what they believe, this is what they say. This is who they say they are. Um, as one reminder, I found this uh, this morning as I was getting ready for this, uh, this webinar, uh, religious Zionism's own leaders are explicit about their alignment with Kahane. For example, one of the party's leaders, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who could very well end up in the next Knesset, was asked in February 19, uh, February 2019 by an Israeli journalist um, about his relationship to Meir Kahane. And he replied, quote, I always say, what's the difference between Rabbi Kahane and us beside his being a leader, a great leader? The big difference is that for us, they turn on the microphones. Today, there are more and more microphones that we are given and we make ourselves heard. So that's him in his own words. So today we're going to discuss the rise and mainstreaming of Meir Kahane's overt supremacist politics policies in Israel, including how this phenomenon is tied to American Jews, how it impacts Palestinians, and implications for Israel-Palestine more broadly. So we are delighted, I am delighted, to be joined by a terrific panel of guests. I'm going to introduce them here in alphabetical order very briefly. Their full bios, as always, are available on our website, www.fmep.org. First, we have Amjad Iraqi. 
Amjad is an editor and writer at 972 Magazine. He is also a policy analyst at Ashebeka, the Palestine Policy Network, and was previously an advocacy coordinator at Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel. Next, we have Professor uh, Rabbi Shaul Magid, Professor Rabbi. Uh, he is a professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College and the Kogod Senior Research Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Um, he is the author of many books. His new book, Meyer Kahane, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, will be published by Princeton University Press in October of this year. We can't wait. Uh, and finally, we have Natasha Roth Rowland. Uh, Natasha is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Virginia and a former editor at 972 Magazine. Her research focuses on the Israeli and American Jewish far right across the 20th century. She currently spent, uh, she previously spent several years living in Israel, Palestine, working as a translator and breaking news editor for various news outlets and reporting from the West Bank and Jerusalem. Uh, so let's get started. I want to start with a scene setting round and I'm going to start Amjad with you. So Israelis, as we said, are going to the polls again, again, in a few days. And in the run up to this election, as usual, we hear a lot of talk about how Israeli society is ever increasingly right wing. And we're diving into the right wing politics today. So we often use the labels right wing. And, and I commented yesterday to a journalist, you know, we've been saying it's going to produce the most right wing government in history. And each time it's true, but it's always escalating. But we use these terms right wing and right wing extremism without defining them in the Israeli context. So will you help what is for this call probably mainly a US and European audience understand the Israeli political spectrum and how the Kahanist party figures into it? And can you also explain how you understand what extreme, what right-wing and extremists mean in the Israeli political context? Thank you, Laura. And also thank you to the FMEP team, Sarah Ann, Kristen for organizing this and for all the work you guys are doing. We really appreciate it. And glad to be on with my friends and colleagues here. Um, the, the first answer to your question is what depends who you ask. Um, in the end, Israeli politics is very much a kaleidoscope uh, with you know, many different dimensions. And what we usually mean when we talk about, you know, the spectrum between left and right wing, you know, to, to kind of identify like a few core elements. One of the first things we talk about is like, how do the political parties promote or identify themselves with different streams of Zionism, for, for example, from liberal Zionist all the way to the more Kahanist, like more national religious elements and everything in between. Uh, type of that is the question of like, how do the parties perceive themselves in regards to the question of a Jewish and democratic state? Like in the, in the concept of trying to balance between them, how far do you tilt to one or the other? And sometimes how far are you willing to compromise sort of democratic elements of the state in order to preserve the Jewishness? So where you are in that kind of, um, that seesaw is also an element. And then and tied with all that, of course, is the question of how do Israelis deal with the Palestinians? Uh, there's the Palestinian citizens within the state uh, who are uh, constitute the sort of national minority and in the Israeli political spectrum, uh, but also the Palestinians, of course, under occupation in the West Bank and Gaza, and also Palestinian refugees. So what also Jewish Israeli political parties primarily kind of perceive, th these are just some of those core elements that define from the left to the right. Now, when you, you know, usually when we try to think of these kind of political spectrums, we usually think of it sort of like a flat line and like, you know, left is here and right is here and you kind of mark your person, you know, mark your party there. I kind of want to put a bit of a crude metaphor to kind of explain a bit more specifically what this, what the spectrum is. Uh, so very crudely, if you imagine like the shape of a seashell, 
which is sort of like, you know, starts off kind of like a flat, sharp end, curves upwards like this, and then bends back down. That there's a large section of the seashell that comes over here. Now, on this sort of smaller, flatter, sharper edge, you have, and this is specifically inside Israel, uh, this is this part is where people believe in full, like, full equality, no racial hierarchy in society and in politics, and a complete end to the occupation, no questions asked. So equality and anti-occupation, which for the most part are the main principles that most of the world agrees and believes in, would be the baseline for any uh, political party in the rest of the world. Here in Israel, that is considered a radical left. That is considered the fringe. And there's not that many people who actually identify with that particular strand of politics. It's mostly Palestinian citizens of Israel and certain segments of radical left-wing activists. Now, as you start going up the seashell, you start getting to the more liberal Zionist parties like Meretz and like Labour, which you know have the same kind of balances of Zionism and Jewish and democratic, but they still identify themselves as Zionist political parties and are more willing to make certain compromises, which aren't the same kind of concept as like the joint list, which is very unequivocal about equality. But for Meretz and Labour, they're more willing to, you know, to set those compromises. You keep going up, you start getting up to the higher parts of the seashell, and this is where you start getting to the more, this is what we define usually as a right-wing bloc. And this starts from the more centrist parties, ones like Yeshatid, led by Yer Lapid, uh, what was blue and white, uh, and still is blue and white, uh, led by Benny Gantz. And you keep going up that seashell, and you get to more uh, parties like Likud, led by Netanyahu, Gideon Saar's New Hope. You keep going, you keep going on that, and you get to like the ultra-orthodox parties, the religious ones like Shas, United Torah Judaism, and then coming on to the more national religious ones like religious science, like religious science and party, and Avigdor uh, Liebman's Yisrael uh, Um Now, why do I kind of define, you know, why do I kind of create this sort of seashell metaphor? Uh, if you combine, for example, let's say the sort of the Palestinian citizen spectrum with, uh, with this, what we call the center left, the liberal Zionist parties, According to most polls, if you combine what they might get, uh, you know, give or take uh, in the seats in the selection, they might get about 20 seats. And that's about one sixth of, of the Knesset itself, if you want to use that as an indicator. And that means, you know, five sixths of the, uh, the Israeli political spectrum is defined by parties which are which identify as a right. And we include the center. We often include the centrist parties there because when push comes to shove, a lot of their policies tilt more towards uh, like right-wing identifying um, um, like ideologies and ideas of like how to deal with the Palestinians or how to deal with Pal uh, Palestinian citizens. And also in historical perspective, where Israeli centrist parties are today is very much what the Likud party was back in the 1970s. So what used to be right-wing in the 70s, again, putting it very simplistically, but what Likud was in the 1970s is now kind of considered like the, the, the middle road in Israeli politics. Um, and, you know, when we come back to that seashell, if the large part of the seashell is mostly that center to the far right, then the real battles that are happening in Israeli politics today is very much within this right wing bloc. And this is where the Kahanists feature on that very far end of that seashell. But these are the, this is the main kind of dynamic. And I'm going to leave it to Natasha and Shaul to kind of go a bit further and how the, you know, what exactly identifies the Kahanists on that edge of the spectrum. Uh, that's a great way to start us off. And I think it actually brings in this idea of the Overton window shifting. So if the 70s, this was the far right and everything shifts over. Um, that's sort of a, a basic a basic thing to understand here. Natasha, I, I want to move to you now. Um, you are a researcher of the Israeli and Jewish far right. We talked about that. I want to ask you the same question um, I just asked Amjad about 
you know, what does right wing mean in the Israeli context? And, you know, this is really important for, you know, speaking as an American, we, we tend to mean all different things when we say right wing. It sort of depends on where you sit, how, what, what it looks like, um, particularly a question of right wing and extremism. And what are the values that define the Jewish Israeli far right? And, and what policies um, does this then lead them to promote? And, and can you talk about their motivations? And to the extent that they are connected to Rabbi Meir Kahane, how, how is it that this racist agitator, and we're going to talk more with Shaul about who he was in the next question, Shaul, get ready. Um, but how is it that a racist agitator from Brooklyn was able to bring his politics to Israel and have such an impact now on the Knesset potentially? Thank you, Lara, for that question. And thank you, every other foundation as well for putting together such a great event. And thank you to all of you who are who are here listening in. Um, I think I think Amjad set this up really well. And you know, this this visual metaphor, I think, really speaks to where the, the balance of power and where the, the weight is um, in Israeli society in terms of kind of being left versus right or center. And you know, this this shifting of the spectrum um, over to the right over the past few decades is is incredibly pronounced. And I think, you know, just before I kind of get into the, the policy and, and belief aspect a little more, I think a really, you know, crystallized way to look at that is, is in terms of in 1988, Kahana's party, Kach, being banned ostensibly for, for being racist. And I, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit more about some of the other things that were kind of leading into that decision to ban the party. And yet in 2019, Otmi Odit, which is running on almost exactly the same platform as Kach, is, is not only not banned, but is actually kind of, um, you know, well, you have the prime minister interceding on their behalf um, without really any, any barriers to his being able to do so. So I think that's, you know, just, just looking at that very specific um, set, of, set of processes is kind of helpful to understand just how, just how much society has shifted over the past uh, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and then in terms of defining the far right and their belief system, you know, look, like in any country, you have all sorts of different, I think, categories and terminologies that can feed into the far right. Some people, you know, talk about the radical right. Some people talk about the extreme right. Some people talk about fascists. Um, when I use the term, I'm, I'm kind of using it as an umbrella to encompass all of those sorts of things. I think for me specifically, I... In terms of Israeli politics, I find the term radicalism um, when it comes to the far right slightly less useful because I think of the radical right as something that is kind of um, operating on an extra parliamentary engine. And I just don't think that really applies anymore in Israeli politics for the most part because you see so many of the beliefs and values and policies and, you know, desiderata of the far right reflected um, inside the Knesset. So you know, in terms of beliefs, I think the two or, or two of the main things you really need to think about are ethnic supremacism um, and territorial maximalism. And that's, you know, sort of trying to get as, as much land as possible with as, as few Arabs as, as possible. That's the kind of strap line. And that strap line extends far beyond the far right, you know, way into the center. And I think even into to parts of what, you know, people might think of as, as the liberal Zionist um, contingent in Israel. But it's certainly much more explicitly stated and kind of blatantly gunned for on, on the far right. Um, there are kind of degrees of separation with that. You know, you have a secular far right in Israel as much as it, it's possible to define them as secular. And then you have the more explicitly religious far right. And that tends to sort of um, 
influence exactly what is being spoken about when they are saying we want the maximum territory available. And I think for the secular far right, it's, you know, at a bare minimum, both sides of the River Jordan. Um, that's certainly been, you know, the ideological through line right from the days of, you know, the institutions that predated uh, what is now the Likud um, through to the present day. When you get into the religious far right, and this is sort of more where um, the likes of Gahana and his you know, ideological progeny come in, you have far, far beyond that. And you, you know, their, their map is essentially from the Nile, um, the River Nile in Egypt to the Euphrates um, in Iraq. You know, this in their mind is the kind of biblical, biblical map that they picture when they when they picture, you know, the full redemption of the land. Um, so, you know, Mayor Kahana, I mean, I'll, I'll let Shaul speak to this a little bit more, um, but, you know, he, he comes into this from a place of, you know, being born in, in Brooklyn um, in the 1930s and sort of growing up with, again, some of these pre-Likud institutions, you know, the revisionist Zionist uh, institutions such as Bitar Youth Group, um, which, again, you know, are at the time that he's in it are sort of fighting for a Jewish state. And when the Jewish state is formed, they're fighting for a Jewish state on both sides of the River Jordan. Um, and, you know, he, he starts out very much as an agitator um, in, in New York City. And I think people associate his early career with, you know, A, campaigning for the liberation of uh, Soviet Jewry and, and also sort of setting up these patrols to, um, you know, to address what he sees as like an in increase in, you know, violent anti-Semitism. Um, and then he sort of shifts his focus over to Israel and moves there. And, you know, his, his mission translate, translates from kind of saving the Jewish body in exile to saving the Jewish spirit in the Jewish homeland. So, you know, he, he refers to the, the Jewish Defense League in Israel before it transitions into Kach as a spiritual defense league. And he says, you know, we have an army here and, you know, people are asking, why do we need a Jewish defense league when we have the Israel defense forces? And he says, well, now I'm here to, to act as, you know, a, a spiritual enforcer. Um, and that's that's really where his his kind of starting point is um, in Israel. Thanks, and that's a great lead-in to Shaul. So uh, Shaul, I think this is a good place to back up for a moment. We sort of we dove right in talking about Kahanism without really talking about Meyer um, Kahane very much. You have this book coming out, which I can't wait to read. I'll add it to my collection next to the Meyer Kahane tomes because I collect those as well. Um, can you explain to us? Uh, who was Meir Kahane and who is he today? Um, and why you think he has been such an important and impactful figure in Jewish and Israeli politics, despite the fact that in theory, he's terribly controversial. Um, and and, and he, in theory, he's tainted with the, the label of, you know, his, his organizations are called F foreign terrorist organizations by the US um, and violence and all of that. Right. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. And and six years ago, when I started writing this book, I, I, I did not think that it was going to be as relevant um, to the present day political world as it, as, as it is, sadly enough. So I want to just throw out um, three different categories that that hopefully we can kind of work with as we kind of move along. The first one is Mayor Kahana, the person. The second one is Kahanaism. And the third one is Neo-Kahanaism. And I think the neo-Kahanaism is important because I think that's kind of what we're dealing with in the present day. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean, the difference between Kahanism and neo-Kahanism. I think Mayor Kahana as a figure 
was a, a total failure in the Israeli political system. I think Kahanism was successful, and I think neo-Kahanism is even more successful. And, and the, reason, the reason why, and this is stepping back to your question, that Kahana as a figure was a failure was because he really was and remained a quintessentially American thinker. He thought in American categories. He emerges in the culture and the race wars of the 1960s. Um, he's never able to really think beyond those categories. He tries to transplant them into the Israeli milieu and it fails miserably. Uh, and I think that in a certain way, the, the argument that I kind of make in the book is that we usually think of, oh, Mayor Kahana had this career, as Natasha says, it emerges in the 1960s, I'll speak a little bit about it in a moment. And then, you know, his real career is in Israel. I think it's actually just the opposite. I think that his real career was in America and Israel was a kind of a coda um, to, to, to what, what, he, what he was interested to in America. I also want to say, again, before I go a little bit into it, is that I don't think that Mayor Kahana was a religious Zionist. I think neo-Kahanism is religious Zionism. Um, in all of his writings, he rarely speaks about Rev Cook. The, the religious Zionist structures were totally uninteresting to him. All of the romanticism and the messianism and the utopianism, Kahana was a, a, was a materialist. It was about power simply about power. And that's why he's kind of closer to Jabotinsky than he is to Rev Cook in many ways. And Jabotinsky was was obviously a hero for him. His Jabotinsky used to stay in the Kahana home when he came to raise money in New York and Kahana met him. Kahana was, I think, seven or eight years old when he died in 1940, but that's kind of the figure for him. Um, he becomes more of a religious figure when he's in Israel. But in America, if you look at the Jewish Defense League, it's not a religious organization at all. It's not a spiritual organization at all. It's an organization about um, what he says in Never Again, trying to save the American dream for Jews. So he really begins as very much as a diasporist thinker. And he wanted to create a kind of muscle Jew model that we saw in Israel with people like Max Nordau and later Jambatinsky. He wanted to create that for the American Jew. And that um, in a certain sense, he models himself after the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. I mean, it's a really interesting relationship he has with people like the Panthers. He calls the JDL the Jewish Panthers, proudly so. He sees the Black Panthers as doing the work for Black people that he wanted to do for Jews. And when we talk about race, we'll kind of get into the complexity of that. Um, at a certain point, he decides, and first of all, interestingly enough, you're right in terms of Soviet Jewry, but the Soviet Jewry movement begins in 1964. Kahana doesn't write anything, well, he writes a short essay in 1964. He doesn't get into the Soviet Jewry movement until late 1969, when it was already very much underway. Now, he does take it over with civil disobedience and, and all kinds of issues that ended in 1971 with the Seoul Yurok bombing. That killed, a, uh, that killed a woman. But in a sense, Kahana at some point in time in the early 70s decides that Amer the American project is a failure, largely because Americans will, will refuse to American Jews refuse to re abandon liberalism because ultimately Kahana is a critic of liberalism, that he's a reactionary critic of liberalism before neoconservatism, before any of that other kind of critique of liberalism happens, he's doing he's doing 
he's using the tactics of the left, of the radical left, for the, for the purposes of the reactionary right, the actionary Jewish right. So there, that's, it's, in, in that sense, he's this fascinating figure, almost sui generis in being able to take the radicalism of the left, because we have to remember, you know, something that Tasha mentioned in terms of the term radical, we have to remember when Kahana comes into, into you know, the public sphere, being a radical was a badge of honor. I mean, this was, this was the late 60s. This was when radicalism is what was happening. So the idea of the radical as being the outside the mainstream illegitimate figure was not something that Kahana, he owned the radicalism. Right, very proudly, and he continued to do so. So the interesting transition happens when Kahana gives up on America and moves to Israel. Now, the questions as to why he left America for Israel, what he did in 1971 is a kind of complicated one. It had to do with legal indictments and all kinds of other things. But he decides that, um, that, uh, that the American project is over and the only future for the Jews in Israel. But even then, interestingly, and this, this is a big difference between, I think, the neo-Kahanism of people like um, Ben Gvir and others, and Kahana was always, Kahana, let's put it this way, Kahana never gave any legitimacy to the secular Zionist project. Secular Zionism to him was totally illegitimate. His purpose in going to Israel was to overthrow the secular Zionist regime and to institute a kind of theocracy that was not a cookie-in romantic theocracy, but really a kind of theocracy of power. So I think it's important to note that although he calls himself a Zionist, and he was a Zionist. I think by the 19, mid 1980s, certainly when the gov when the when the Knesset outlaws his party, he really sees Zionism as a failure. It's just another form of Jewish Hellenism, and in a certain way, he becomes a kind of apocalyptic post-Zionist of sorts. And so that's why I think he's a failure because I think that the Kahanas that exist now in Otsma Yehudit. They're of a different breed. They're an amalgam of cookie-in religious Zionism and Kahanist tactics of power. Whereas Kahana really, in a certain way, um, was only willing to buy into the Zionist picture if he could have it his way, which was, in a sense, for him, leftists like Yossi Sarid were just as bad as rightists like Ula Cohen, right? They were both secular, and therefore their Zionism really had no basis. And we'll talk about this when we, when we talk about race and racism and the grammar of racism, because it's important. So I think that it's important for us to see that um, he remains popular, interestingly enough, obviously in Israel, because that's what we're talking about. But a lot of the way in which he saw the world seeped very deeply into the American Jewish consciousness today as well. Perennial anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism on the left is worse than anti-Semitism on the right. I mean, things that you hear the ADL saying, things that you hear more mainstream Jewish organizations saying are things that Kahana was saying in the 1970s. The fight against intermarriage. Kahana writes a book in 1974 about intermarriage when nobody was writing about intermarriage. So the, it, it's interesting to think about Kahanism as a political factor in Israel and a kind of non-militaristic 
survivalist Kahanism in the American establishment as well. I'll stop there. No, that's fascinating. I was thinking, you know, I've pondered reading his work sometimes, looking at where the discourse is in the American Jewish community and in Israel, to what extent he was defining what would become the issues that 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 really that shatter the community around which people break, or to what extent he was just presciently identifying where those landmines were. Um, and maybe there was a way around them, or maybe there weren't. I, I actually have not, I, I haven't come down <laughs> on where I, I am on that question. Um, I want to stick with you, Shoal, for a second here and continue this conversation. What about the man versus the movement and Kahanism and Jewish power today? You talked about this a little bit. You now have religious Zionism, the party, which is, as you said, adopting at least the tactics and a lot of the language of Kahanism, which are already present in, in parties that are, that are already active and not just in this, this latest round, I mean, for years now. Um, and you've written articles about Kahane and his legacy. And, and you wrote an article in 2019 entitled Kahane One. Um, and you describe the ideology of the Jewish power party as a mix of messianism and militant pragmatism. Can you talk about that a little bit more? And you, can you talk about the role specifically of violence in that ideology? And can you link, can you talk about how that links or doesn't link to the election that's gonna happen next week? Right, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think the way it, 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 kind of le it kind of leads into the neo-Kahanism that I think is really what's happening in Israel now when um, homegrown Israelis, Sabras, people that grew up in Israel and were part of the uh, um, religious yeshiva uh, movement that was influenced by Abraham Isaac Cook and then later Sfi Yehuda Cook, which was really about a certain kind of messianic, uh, a messianic Zionism that was not violent. I mean, it was, Rev Sfi Yehuda Cook was decidedly against the use of violence, specifically against the, against the Arabs. So, because there was a belief that the unfolding of the eschaton, the unfolding of the messianic era was about to happen. And basically, you know, all the Jews needed to do was to basic, to keep the land, to build on the land. And this itself would, 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 it would um, uh, bring about this messianic end. The problem happened when history started to move the other way. Once you began to have Camp David one, the story of Yamit and the giving back of Yamit, right, where Kahanists were threatening to commit collective suicide rather than give back the land, and the government had to fly Kahana down to Yamit to tell his people to kind of get off the rooftops. Once history started going the other way, once the peace movement started, that's when the Kahanist violence begins to enter. Because it's easy to be nonviolent when the history is on your side and you think that you're in this process of this unfolding messianic era. But when the state itself starts to act against that process, then Kahanist violence starts to intervene as a way to push back against the government. So in a certain sense, the, the Kahanist violence that begins to happen in the time in the, in the 70s and 80s is against the Arab population, but really its target is the state. It's really trying push pushing back against the state and it's using violence against the Arabs to do that. 
Joel, can I ask you just it's interrupt? Can, can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by what you're talking about when you talk about violence in the 70s and the 80s? Because, I mean, I, I've engaged with Israeli journalists who don't know anything about the Jewish underground. They've never heard of, you know, organized Jewish terrorism in the West Bank in the 80s. Can you just touch on that very briefly? So there was an organization called the Machteret Yehudit, the Jewish Underground, which was really a kind of fairly, it was it was Kahanist in in not in any kind of formal sense, and basically their position was to engage in acts of violence against Palestinians, the Palestinian mayor of Bethlehem, and then their big you know the big movement was to try to blow up the Dome of the Rock. And the purpose of doing that was very apocalyptic. That's to say, if they were able to blow up the Dome of the Rock, it would begin this kind of war, the wars of Gog and Magog from the book of Daniel, right? It would begin the end time, right? So that violence was used as a tool to, to, to bring about the, uh, the final wars of, of, the, of, the, of the apocalypse. They were, they were caught. Uh, many of them were imprisoned for very short periods of time and very soon let out of prison. Some of them, many of them, but some of them are no longer alive, some of them are. So I, I think what the interesting thing of the neo-Kahanism that is that I wanna talk about is Kahanist tactics with a cookie and vision, with a religious Zionist messianic vision, right? And that is something that Kahana himself never really adopted. He never really was able to integrate that. For him, it was very simply about, about, uh, about Jewish power. But I, there's something else I want to, I just want to, before we go on, I want to, I want to bring in here, and that is the question of, of a Jewish and democratic state. The people that were challenging the possibility of a Jewish and democratic state as being viable in the 1960s was the left groups like Mats Penn and other groups on the left that were saying that Jewish and democratic is simply impossible. Kahana was the first person on the right that was basically saying that Jewish and democratic is impossible. He called it schizophrenia, right? There's either a Jewish state or a democratic state. And of course for Kahana, there was, it was a Jewish state and not, not, not a democratic state. So I think one of the influences of Kahanism today is you find among Israelis, and here I'll say this is not only true of the, ref, the far right parties that, that Amjad was talking about, but even in the center or the center right, people are no longer so tied to democracy. In other words, if there's a choice between a Jewish and democratic state, increasingly Israelis will say, why is democracy holy? A Jewish state is holy. And so I think that is, that is, that's a way in which Kahanism has kind of seeped into the mainstream on the question about what democracy is. And the, the second thing is this idea that for Kahana, there, and you see this among people, even in the center left saying things like this, Kahana was saying in the 60s and 70s or the 70s and 80s, the land of Israel belongs to the Jews. We will do with it what we want. If the Arabs play nice, we'll let them stay. And if they don't, we won't. Among people now, even in the center of the political spectrum, they'll say, Israel, the Jews have a right to the entirety of the land of Israel, but if the Arabs are nice, we'll give them a piece of it. Right. But it's that same, it's the same, it's the same, it, that, that kind of imbalance that the land of Israel belongs to the Jews and it can do with it what it wants, 
on the left side, they'll say, okay, we'll give you a state if you, if you, if you fill these conditions. For Kahana, it was, yes, you can be second-class citizens if you acknowledge the right if you acknowledge the right and the sovereignty of the Jews in the land of Israel. This has become a centrist position, when in the 1960s and 1970s, this was a far-right position. Thank you. Natasha, I want to come back to you. In a podcast with Line 72, you said, and I'm going to quote, if you look at something like the Jewish nation-state law that is absolutely informed by an idea of supremacism, Kahane could have written that law himself. But it wasn't put forward by Kahanist parties. It was put forward by parties that, yes, are on the right, but we consider absolutely part of the Israeli mainstream and not at all extremist. So that's the end of the quote. How did Kahanism as an ideology move so seamlessly from the margins to the mainstream? Thanks, Laura. Um, you know, I think Shaul really spoke to that um, when he, he talked about this this idea of total incompatibility between a Jewish state and, and a democratic state um, that Kahana put forward and actually, you know, kind of campaigned on uh, when he was running for the Knesset, especially in his, his later Knesset runs. Um, and he, you know, he specifically named Western democracy as, as being the thing that had no place in Israel. So actually, you know, this then became part of a, a kind of dual part vision in which he, he would say that, you know, Jews have no place in Western democracies, they should be in the land of Israel, and Western democracy has no place in the land of Israel. Um, and I think the other piece to that is that there is this kind of latency to the idea of a Jewish state and a democratic state being incompatible that has been there from the start. It's been a tension that's been there since the state of Israel has, was founded. And I think it's, it's a tension that has been sort of um, fudged and obscured uh, in various ways over the past 70 odd years. But I think what has happened is over the course of time due to repeated wars, due to the rising power of the right, um, due to the fact that you know Israel has been able to kind of keep hold of the land without facing too many consequences. It's it's kind of just allowed Kahana's ideas to resonate more, to incubate um, and to kind of gain greater traction socially and politically. Um, you know, especially concerning not just the role of democracy in a Jewish state, but also the place of non-Jews in a Jewish state. Um, and of course, you know, the famous Kahanist chant and, and you know, now slogan of the, the far right that you see, you, you know, you hear chanted demonstrations and you see graffitied, uh, you know, in, in, on walls in Jerusalem and across the West Bank is Aravi Machutza, which means Arabs out. Um, and that's kind of taken as like, you know, the extreme right position. Um, but the fact is that in, in one way or another, the state itself has been saying Arabs out since 1948. Um, and that has, you know, been more or less obvious, more or less extreme at various points. But there is always, always been a tension around the role of, of and place of non-Jews in the Jewish state. So I think when you have this very, very powerful latent kernel of an idea that's that's kind of just sitting there at, at the core of the society and, and it's not being addressed except by people who are saying, let's act on it, or people who are, you know, a minority saying, let's try and push back against this idea. There is always going to be the opportunity for somebody like Kahana to come along and 
and point directly at it and say, you know, this is the this is the unresolved tension at the heart of our society. And if we resolve this tension, then we'll resolve the problems with our with our country. Um, and I think Shaul is right in saying that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Kahana wasn't necessarily successful as an individual peddling that message. You know, he 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 failed at times quite spectacularly to get into the Knesset on three or four occasions before then winning one seat. And, you know, it looked like ahead of 1988 elections that he was gonna actually, his party was gonna win quite a few more seats. And, you know, a lot of people do say that actually, that's the real reason that he, his party was banned from running because the other far right parties and the other right wing parties, particularly could, were worried about um, Kach siphoning off votes from them. Um, so it, you know, it kind of goes to show that even though he didn't necessarily sort of accumulate the degree of power that he he wanted to and sought to, his ideas were developing momentum on their own. Um, and I think, you know, once you're kind of post second intifada, um, and the peace camp in Israel kind of collapses. All of his supporters and his ideological descendants you know, feel that they have something much more compelling to point to when they kind of roll out their slogan, Kahana was right. Um, and that, you know, we can't coexist in this land and the only solution is to actually, you know, have this be uh, a state without Palestinians in it. Um, and the way that that gets integrated into policy is, is not through doing something so extreme as what the far right likes to euphemistically call transfer transfer, which is essentially, um, you know, expelling all Palestinians from, from the, la the greater land of Israel, you know, both sides of, of the River Jordan, the West Bank and inside the Green Line. Um, but through policies that um, immiserate, erase, uh, move people around, concentrate Palestinians uh, in, in smaller and smaller areas of land, mostly within the West Bank, but also somewhat within the Green Line as well. Um, and reduce, reduce their national status and reduce their ability to participate um, in national institutions and in you know, social processes and political processes more generally. So we end up with things like I mentioned in the podcast, the Jewish nation state law, which is, you know, was heavily protested at the time by certain sections of Israeli society and also by you know, the, the global Jewish community but within Israel now is absolutely a mainstream position. There is, there is very little controversy outside of those liberal and left-wing pockets about that law, because at this stage, it's not actually advancing anything. It's just retro retroactively affirming a state of affairs that has been the norm for decades at this point. Thank you very much. Amjad, I wanna come back to you. So Kahane referred to Palestinians as enemies. He developed proposals geared to encourage, uh, encourage them to leave, either through financial incentives or even threat of expulsion. Looking at the question though of how this became mainstream, whether we're talking about, as Natasha just said, the, the populated land transfers, the nation state law, can, can you talk about, or, or things like loyalty oaths, right? Can you talk about that process? And, and I'm specifically interested if you also wanna address the question of the role of the left in the peace era when the left adopted the demographic argument as their single most powerful argument they believed for convincing people that there had to be a two-state solution because the demographic argument basically adopts in some ways the, the Kahanist idea that the existence of 
Palestinians and more Palestinian babies are a threat, the demographic threat of Palestinians having children. Um, and also, you know, dating back to, to the beginning of the Oslo process, you know, and Rabin and his coalition, this idea that it is somehow um, not kosher for a leader to, re to rely on Arab parties to have a majority in the Knesset. How that all became embedded so early and, and, and really the role of the left in some ways of giving it a kosher stamp, even with the best of intentions. Um, yeah, and to kind of continue off of what Shaul and Natasha were just saying, um, you know, the answer lies in the history books of how long this, you know, these ideas and these elements have existed. Um, you know, the, the elements that make up Kahanism weren't just mainstream, a lot of them were actually fulfilled. And, you know, to put it very bluntly, and I don't think it's, I don't think I'll be making an overstatement by saying this, but the Israeli Labour Party has perhaps inflicted more harm and cause more damage to the Palestinians than Kahanists ever have. And the reason is very simple, that the Labour Party as the dominant party for the first several decades of the state carried out most of what Kahana wanted. Uh, you know, the idea of the of Palestinians being enemies, you know, Palestinian citizens were identified as a fifth column. The enemy doctrine operated on them both as a security threat and a demographic threat since day one, uh, even before 48 and continuing after 48 and to this day, we are enemy aliens. Uh, and that was an established fact of the state. The force transfer, it was the David Ben-Gurion and the Labour Party that guided the Zionist movement to carry out the biggest uh, forcible expulsions in the Nakba in 1948. Uh, the concept of segregation of land and housing, the first two decades of the state, uh, the Labour government uh, it, uh, you know, designed the entire land regime to ensure that uh, Jewish Israelis had the most space and had their own exclusive Jewish towns and that Palestinians were concentrated into ghettos and into townships. All this was under this, you know, the Zionist left government. The same with the occupation was, was began and led and the settlement enterprise was guided by the labor government. And the same with the discriminatory laws that make Jewish Israelis inherently more privileged to Palestinian citizens. All that was designed by this, by these left, so-called leftist governments. So a lot of that has been fulfilled even long before Kahana even came about, uh, you know, on the political scene. But what differentiates Kahana from, you know, that other side of the spectrum is that Kahana is saying, finish the job, that you guys managed to do whatever, 80% of, what of what we believe is right. And what about this remaining 20%? That Kahana wants to say, like, expel all of them. Don't think about democracy. Don't think about what the world uh, it considers of your policies. Go, go as far as you can. And this is really the dividing point between, not only between the different right-wing parties, which are debating how far do you go with, the, with these policies and practices, but also between the right and the center-left, because the center-left is also starting from that point where we've already done most of what we needed to do to ensure a Jewish majority state, to ensure uh, Jewish privileges uh, in the country, to keep Palestinian citizens as second class, to even maintain the occupation, even as Rabin, who is a labor prime minister, to institute a lot of the mechanisms of Oslo, which have remained to this day, like two, three decades after they were first designed. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of ironically, you know, we, we were talking about like Avigdor Lieberman, who about two decades ago was kind of like, he was, he was supposed to be that far right pull. Like he was the, considered like the, the end extreme uh, of, where, of how far Israeli politics was willing to go. Lieberman obviously espousing the idea of like, making Palestinian citizens sign loyalty oaths uh, to the state of Israel, to the idea of forcibly transferring, again, you know, the, the euphemism uh, or even like taking, uh, you know, certain Palestinian towns within Israel and even putting it under a Palestinian state or some Palestinian entity. 
you know, and everyone kind of called him, you know, th this, you know, this far-fetched fringe character. And then the moment Netanyahu came in 2000, came back in 2009, he opened the door for Lieberman to become foreign minister, deputy prime minister, then defense minister. And now Lieberman is still present, but he's not even the worst that Israeli politics has to offer, which is quite wild. Um, and it's also very disconcerting that, you know, what divides, as far as, you know, the right-wing politics is concerned, what divides Lieberman from like the Kahanis right now is that Lieberman, for example, is a fierce secular politician. Uh, and what like religious Zionism is espousing is a much more kind of, again, like a religious theocratic type of thing. That's, the, that's a major division as far as Jewish Israeli politics is concerned. But as far as Palestinians are concerned, the fact that both of these parties who might be at loggerheads on other issues are very much united on what do we do with Palestinian citizens? We should maintain complete supremacy of the, of the land of Israel. Uh, and whether or not it's a state or an entity or whatnot, but the idea is that we must maintain that supremacy. Um, and so, you know, the, all this comes back again to this idea that it, you know, it's not just mainstream, it's been very much practiced. It's not just a theoretical concern, it's very much implemented. Uh, and again, coming back to the fact that because of this massive right-wing shift, this massive right-wing base that most Israeli political parties are on, and as Shaul mentioned, the fact that centrist parties are espousing a lot of these basic ideas that Kana uh, was promoting um, is an indication of how normal these views are. Thank you. And, and you know, listening to you, I'm thinking about, and we can address this in, a, in another round if we have time, maybe. I'm thinking about the role that the international community, particularly the United States, played in, in enabling this mainstreaming. I'm trying to, you know, thinking about the, the hard line, you know, conditions that are placed on Palestinians for participation in, in, in the peace process or participation as, as a partner for, the, for diplomacy. In Israel, we, we've seen since the start of the Oslo process, this, this shift, again, the Overton window shifting to where politics and policies that are anathema to the very idea of a two-state solution, Israeli-Palestinian peace, have become in the, ma the mainstream. And it hasn't changed the fact that the Liebermans of the world are, are welcomed and feted and, and treated as exactly as, as, as legitimate, while again, the Palestinians have constantly themselves. It's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating to think about the enabling effect that that has when it's not just there's no cost in Israel to maintain the occupation, there's also no cost as the Overton window moves further and further right. So we can think if someone wants to hold on to that idea, we can come back to it later. Um, Natasha, I want to come back to you here. Um, so Kahana's anti-Arab extremism, which we've now talked about, you know, focusing on, you know, f opposing intermarriage and not seeing, you know, wanting ex expulsion and all that, it also extended into areas like gender and sexuality. So he, for example, um, people may not remember, he drafted a bill to outlaw sexual relations between Jews and Arabs. And, and that legacy continues um, in activist groups that associate themselves ideologically with him, like Lahava, which works to prevent and break up personal relations. This is so euphemistic between Jews, uh, Jewish Israelis and Arabs, including rescuing girls. It's, it's very much a they're taking our women sort of approach. Um, it also extends to the, uh, the anti-LGBTQ ideology of religious Zionism, um, whose leader, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, and we saw again a report of this today, he has called himself a proud homophobe. He, there's something today, you know, opposing gay marriage, and I think comparing it to bestiality or something, it's just horrible. Um, so can you talk about Kahane's gender and sexual politics and how you see these relating to contemporary Israeli society and specifically to violence? 
And also, I'd be curious if you can talk about, you know, again, we look at the spectrum of right wing, left wing, and, and has there been a gradual shift to where right wing extremist policies, politics on Arabs and Israel, Palestine are now inextricably linked to the, the rest of the right wing basket of politics that we think of in the US on social issues, on, on, on issues like LGBTQ and, and whatnot? Yeah, they're great questions. Um, I'll, I'll answer the sort of first set first. And if I if I forget what the, the second one is about the kind of interrelation between the wider um, far right, then please, uh, please feel free to interrupt and, and remind me to move on to that in my time. Um, yeah, you know, for me, sexual and gender politics are an animating force um, in Kahana's worldview. And I think given given how central they they were to how he 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 saw the world and engaged with it i think they, they sort of get short shrift a little bit um in in some of the the writing that's that's out there a little bit you know there's of course a lot of people discuss um you know his his bills that you just mentioned his proposed bills that would criminalize um you know not just marriages or relationships but any kind of sexual contact between jews and non-jews and um in, in at least one version of what he was proposing, you know, that the criminal penalties would be higher on the non-Jew um, involved in that equation um, than on the Jewish party. In but the US we call these anti-miscegenation laws. Yes, exactly. Um, anti-miscegenation laws, that's right. But I think, you know, it, it goes much further than that. That's just, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the policy tip of the iceberg under which there is this whole kind of bundle of neuroses and anxieties and obsessions and I would say you know borderline fetishizations as well around um, Jewish women and Jewish purity and and also what what um, Shaul referred to earlier which is this idea of the muscle Jew and I think it shifts when he's from when he's in the United States to when he's in Israel and in the United States you know he's very concerned in um, in some of his early JDL manifestos about the masculinity of, of Jewish men. And he kind of, he draws this association between, you know, the kind of exilic, assimilated, you know, Western liberal Jew who's kind of disinherited his um, Jewish identity and history, which, you know, he should be emulating the Maccabees and Bar Kokhba and King David. And in the process is kind of has lost his, his Jewish self and his authentic Jewish identity. And that's what's led to, you know, the abjection of Jews in the exile. Um, and, you know, when he's discussing this, he, he refers to, you know, the, the so-called temptations of the non-Jewish women using very derogatory terms for non-Jewish women, which I won't repeat here, but I'm sure many of us are aware of. Um, and is, is, is really fighting for, you know, Jewish men to re-inherit their, you know, kind of biblical sovereign and, you know, occasionally violent heritage uh, when it's when it's called for as he sees it. Um, the journalist Aviva Cantor kind of very pithily referred to the JDL as, as probably the original Jewish men's group. Um, and I think that's, you know, especially in terms of how we understand men's rights activists today, I think that's, you know, quite a depth uh, way of referring to them. And then when he moves to Israel, you know, he's, of course, the whole time he is absolutely dead set against any kind of relationship between Jews and non-Jews. But when he moves to Israel, you know, it, it seems to me at least that his, his focus shifts far more. And like, you know, like a good 
a good right-wing nationalist in his national home, he becomes infinitely concerned with the purity of Jewish women and the good name of Jewish women. Um, and he starts these, what he calls, uh, I think, honor patrols or an honor guards to, you know, patrol the streets where there may be interactions between Jews and non-Jews. And here, non-Jews are almost exclusively understood as Palestinians and make sure that, you know, any untoward uh, interaction is not happening. And there's, there's a, a kind of ethnic component to this as well for Kahana because he, I think especially towards the late 1970s and early 1980s, he becomes much more focused on the issue of Sephardi and Mizrahi Jewry in, in Israel. And, um, you know, especially after he's in, in prison in Ramler in 1980, he, he, re, you know, he, he writes, uh, you know, all of these kind of um, missives about how the state of Israel has, um, you know, alienated Mizrahi Jews from their heritage. And he says, you know, in thousands of years of exile, Mizrahi Jews are the ones, you know, Jews from the Middle East and North Africa are the ones who have really maintained their heritage and maintained their identity and maintained their separateness and their, their customs and their traditions. And then they moved to Israel, which was founded by, you know, these liberal Western Jews and these liberal Western Jews have, you know, um, ripped their heritage from them and are causing a spiritual Holocaust. Those, those are his terms. I'm, I'm, I'm not using that, that terminology myself. And so within that framework, he then um, adds in this, this gender and sexual politics component in which he particularly points to Jewish women of Middle East and North African origin as being particularly susceptible to what he sees as, you know, recruitment and deception and abuse and exploitation by Palestinian men. Um, and he says, you know, part of the responsibility for that lies with the state of Israel because they've, you know, they've immiserated um, and alienated Mizrahi Jews. And so it, it, it's sort of part of this, I would say, borderline fetishization of Middle East and North African Jews in general and Middle East and North African Jewish women um, in particular. He sees them as, you know, the pinnacle of, of kind of his idea of, of Jewish purity and Jewish identity and that, you know, therefore there is the most to lose when they, they get into a relationship with a Palestinian man. Um, and so we see, you know, we see the, the, the modern iteration of that, as you mentioned, um, with Lahava, who have their own kind of quote unquote honor patrols, um, particularly on the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there have been endless news reports of, you know, Saturday nights after the Sabbath is over of, you know, these young men patrolling the streets of Jerusalem, particularly around Zion Square um, and assaulting Palestinians. Um, and that violence really lies in the idea, this nationalist and, you know, in, in this instance, religious nationalist idea of the woman's body as a national resource and the woman's body as a national border. Because the problem with miscegenation for, for, for you know, people who subscribe to this ideology is that it breaches the borders of the nation because it breaches the nation's purity. And so the battle over women's bodies in this context becomes a form of warfare. They're guarding the borders of the nation as they would do on actual territory. And so that's where the violence comes in. And there was another piece to your question, and that's the one I was going to ask you to remind me of. 
So and we can, if you want to address it now, we can come back to it later if there's time. This, this question, look, this is something I struggle with from the years that I was uh, in Jerusalem, you know, meeting with the settlers every day. Mm-hmm. Um, the settler leadership at the time, which was more Kukian than Kahanist, but, you know, they really prided themselves on being American progressives who'd come to continue the progressive cause in the West Bank. And they, they really cloaked themselves in still progressive values. And what I've witnessed watching their evolution from the 90s to the present is that they are now fully, in terms of their, the social values they espouse, they're closely aligned with what we had in the United States with Trump and his supporters. So you see more anti-LGBTQ, there is a, an absolute regressive idea like liberalism is the danger, liberal values are the danger. It's been quite extraordinary. It's sort of like, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound after a certain point, or, you know, perhaps a world outlook that will justify perpetual occupation and domination cannot exist after a certain point unless it also gives in across the board on the values because the, the cognitive dissonance is just unbearable. That, that's what I've witnessed. I'm, I'm curious how that with your impressions yeah i mean i think i think it's something that would be be good to to come back to a little later because i'm also really interested to hear what um uh what shall and Amjad think about it but uh you know i th- there there will be specificity to this um you know as regards uh, the israeli settlement project and israeli settlers and the israeli far right but i also do think it is you know i, I do want to put it in a global context and there is you know, a broad um, uptick in kind of backlash to the perceived advance of, of liberal values um, as it relates to uh, gender and sexuality and gender identity. And so, I, I, you know, I think this is is part of that as well, while it obviously retains its, you know, own specific modality on the ground in Israel-Palestine. Thank you. Shaul, let, let's come back to you. Um, grammar of race. This is a really, this term intrigues me. I want you to talk more about this. You've written about what you call Kahane's grammar of race and how it relates to his effort to promote Jewish pride and and really supremacy. Can you explain what that term means? And can you explain your understanding of the role of of race for Kahane and his followers? And and can you talk about whether, and if if the answer is yes, how you see the grammar of race playing a role for those who promote Kahane's values and policies today? Right. Well, the grammar of race is 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 a term I borrowed from Afro pessimist um, Frank Wilderson III, uh, and the Afro pessimists in general like to use that term. And I found I found that it was a good term to use because the question of was Kahana a racist? Was he not a racist? What is it, it's it's not racism is not really an analytical category in a way. It's more of a judgment. So I found it wasn't really useful. Like was Kahana racist? Yes. Well, of course he was a racist. But then it depends on how you term racism and what that means. But I think what was more interesting for Kahana was the way he used race, the way he used the term and the category of race to promote particular kinds of positions that he wanted. To, to put forth. And that's what I mean by, by the grammar of racism in the sense it's a kind of, um, uh, it, it's, it's a kind of linguistic performance of how race gets trotted out and used and conceptualized. And I can give an example in a moment. I, I do want to say that the race question really is, in a certain sense, the central question of, of understanding Kahana, because his career begins with founding the Jewish Defense League in 1968 in response to black uh, uh, expressions of anti-Semitism in the Ocean Hill-Brownsville school strike in New York. That's So he basically begins his career on the question of race. 
And then his career ends with the racism law in 1987, which basically ousts him from the Knesset, right? So in a sense, it's the, it's the bookends of his, of his public life. So, you know, he comes, he comes up in the race wars of the 1960s. And he's faced with um, the emergence of black nationalism, the, the way in which after 1967, because of third worldism and a variety of things, many of the people within the black nationalist movement, within the Black Panther Party, basically, uh, and, and not only, but also view the Jews in a negative light and the famous essay by James Baldwin in 1967, right? You know, black Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white and the whole question of whiteness and the Jew and whiteness comes into play, as well as the white anti-Semitism, the Ku Klux Klan and the John Birch Society and all those other things. One of the thing that one of the things that Kahana does is basically makes the claim that black racism in a certain sense is more dangerous for the Jew than white racism because, or I'm sorry, black anti-Semitism is more dangerous to the Jew than white anti-Semitism because black anti-Semitism is essentially making the Jew white. Whereas white anti-Semitism is painting the Jew as other. And in some way, seeing the Jew as other is a safer place for Kahana in terms of Jewish identity and Jewish survival than seeing the Jew as white. Can, can I just make it just a side note that, that that aligns almost remarkably well with the report that was issued this week by the Reut um, think tank in Israel, which is explicitly about the idea that racism that erases, oh, sorry, anti-Semitism that erases Jewish otherness is the greatest threat. Um, right. It's remarkable. Hearing you say that, I'm sort of getting a chill. Um, yeah, yeah. So, well, Kahana was saying that quite quite early. Now, the racism law is an interesting one because it's what ends his career. And I just want to read one passage. It's just from the, from the proofs of the book, but I think it just I just want to say because it's concise. He says, I, I, he says, I say, if I'm correct, then the racism law that removed Kahana from the Knesset was not necessarily an indictment of his call for Jewish power and exclusivity, but reflected the fact that he had gone too far and frame those attitudes in a way that most Israeli Jews felt was unacceptable. In a sense, Kahana introduced the race issue to Israel-Palestine in the way that Natasha talks about it too, very forcefully. The conflict that had been framed as purely nationalist and Kahana's assertions of racialization made many Israelis feel uncomfortable. Put otherwise, Kahana overly Americanized the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think that this is actually quite important because the question of race in Israel got spun out in different ways. So he's a, a great example. When Kahana came, as and, and, and as 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 Natasha said, he somehow aligned himself with the Mizrahi Sephardi Jewish population that was being discriminated against by the Ashkenazi elite labor movement, right? And when the Israeli Black Panther Party was founded in the 70s, which was the Mizrahi pride movement, Kahana thought that the Black Panthers were going to be his allies. But actually, the Black Panthers turned out to be his enemies because the Black Panthers, the Israeli Black Panthers, were also aligning with the Arab population, right? Because they, were, they saw themselves as people of color. 
and that it wasn't necessary. Their Jewishness was not their 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 colorness was not necessarily exclusively Jewish. So kind of triangulates this. There's the Arab population, which is the the people of color who are the enemy. There's the Jewish people of color who should be my allies. And then there's the white Ashkenazi elite who are basically likened to the American liberal community who were the enemy. But it kind of blew up in his face because the Black Panthers turned out to be, you know, the Black Panthers and the JDL were like rioting within, fighting with each other in the streets in Zion Square in Jerusalem, right? And this, this, this actually hurt Kana very deeply because he realized that the transference of the racial, the racial category to Israel just didn't work. It couldn't work because you had that triangulation. It wasn't just whites and blacks and the Jews in the middle, but you have in Israel, black Jews, black non-Jews and white Jews. And he really had no place within that, that kind of paradigm. So it's just a, a fascinating kind of failure uh, on, on his part. I, I also do want to say that that um, I wonder, for example, because Kahana did one of the first things he did, which Natasha said, was put forth a uh, a piece of legislation that didn't pass that that outlawed Arab Jewish in our Jewish dating, right? And I wonder today, if you took a poll among Jewish Israelis, what the percentages would be about a law that would our that would outlaw Arab Jewish dating. You know, I think they would probably be more, it'd be higher than you think. Now, obviously not everybody, right? But I think it would be higher than you think. So I think that Kahana saw that in a sense, um, this was something that Jews would be sympathetic to. Um, the other thing I wanted to, uh, I wanted to say on the race issue is, is, the, is the way in which there was one other point. Um, yes. So he has this very interesting twist. And one of the things in terms of the grammar of racism, what Kahana does as a response to being ousted from the Knesset because he, from the racism law, he said to Abba Ibn in his book, Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews, it's actually just the opposite. I'm not a racist because I believe that God gave the land of Israel to the Jews. The only ones that are racist are the secular Zionists. Because for a secular Zionist, what right do you have to the land that other people live on if it wasn't given to you by God? So in a sense, you know, this is a great example of a grammar of racism, right? Where he uses the tool of saying to the secular Zionist, to Abba Ibn, okay, tell me why you're not being a racist because the only right to the land that you can muster is some kind of an ethnic racial right. For me, I believe that God gave the land. Now, Obviously, this is this is a kind of interesting performative tool, but he knows how to use race as a way as a manipulative and performative tool to turn things around and to actually make the argument, which he really did say secular Zionism is racism. He said he said the United Nations was right about secular Zionism, but not about the Zionism that I espouse. Thank you. And that makes me think of the arguments I used to have in the West Bank with settlers who basically argued when people talked about a two state solution that, you know, if you think, you know, that it's illegitimate to take Palestinian land, then why aren't you fighting to give back Tel Aviv? And the Jewish claim to the West Bank is far stronger than the Jewish claim historically to Tel Aviv. Um, right. It comes back to the, there's, there's some, some, some really 
effective arguing here for sure. Amjad, I want to come back to you in your analysis of contemporary Israeli society, looking back on what Natasha just said and Shaul just said, how do you see the impact today of Kahane's racial and gendered politics? How are they expressed today? Um, how are they determining or, or, or helping define where things are going today? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a lot of impacts that we could talk about, but one I would particularly want to highlight, and I think this is referred to by both Natasha and Shaul over the conversation, is that Kahana and his, and his legacy is, was to tell a lot of Jewish Israelis and was kind of absorbed by a lot of Jewish Israelis to shed the facade, to shed the facade of the Jewish and democratic, to shed the facade that, you know, of you know, Israel being this, you know, this state that's trying to look out for everybody and say, no, unapologetically say that you're ethno-national, unapologetically say that you're more concerned with being Jewish, with create, making, ensuring this a Jewish state, and kind of like what Estrell was uh, saying in one of his earlier remarks, that you know, like even the centrist party is like, why is democracy such a holy, such a holy concept? Um, I think that I think that more than anything, or at least is one of the chief things that kind of really left left on the Israeli society today. Now, ironically, and this kind of comes back to the quote that Laura you you opened up with of like, you know, the irony is that when Kahana tried to promote this, that he had consequences. You know, again, he was barred from the Knesset. His party was. Uh, eventually banned. And as we've been as we've been saying here, you can now essentially say the same things and not face those consequences. And this also relates again to what you were mentioning earlier, uh, Laura, to kind of come back to it, that it, it's not just that Israelis themselves aren't putting those same consequences on that kind of discourse, but the world itself, as you've had these more kind of Kahana-like uh, sort of figures, including people like Lieberman, who again started becoming senior government official, to people like Smotrich, you know, who again has been in government and had uh, you know serious positions in government, and now you might have someone like Benigvir, yani, who's openly Kahanas, and might also end up having to get a position in government. Like the fact that that impunity continued to operate, that the more that Jewish-Israeli politicians pushed the boundaries of the discourse, started being more explicit about what they wanted and found that there was no backlash or consequence either internally or abroad, then why not continue down that rightward trend? And that was really the big stamp that, that Khan has left. And, um, and also like to say like, you know, the prime minister for the past, what, 12 years, Netanyahu also learned from this quite a lot. Over the years, you've seen how Netanyahu himself is being more explicit with the language that he's adopting, that he's also starting to echo things that Lieberman once said, that, that Kahana once said, also talking about the idea of potentially forcibly transferring Palestinian citizens. The fact that the deal of the century, uh, you know, was basically kind of co-written between the US and Israel, and it also proposed the possibility of taking Palestinian citizens and putting them into this Palestinian pseudo state. Um, and, that, and, and again, the, the fact that this could keep going and that even the highest kind of government official on the land can continue down that legacy of just keep pushing it further, keep pushing it further, is is really, I think, the biggest, uh, you know, it, it's that biggest terrifying factor of, of what Ghana has meant for, has meant for Israel. Keep shedding it. Forget forget the mask. Just openly say you're you're Jewish. And this is again why the Jewish nation state law, you know, despite any potential differences that occurred, was like, yeah, there's nothing, you know, you're not telling us anything new by having by saying that yeah, we are a state for Jews that put Jews first, and that self determination belongs to Jews only in this land because everyone already believes it. And it's okay to say it out loud and not have to think about hiding it anymore. Um, yeah, that, that for me is the biggest thing, please. Thanks. So we have about 15 minutes left. I wanna do a sort of speedier round this last round. I wanna look more at the United States. 
um, where I am sitting. Um, and I will note as an intro to this, that if um, the Khanists get into government, um, Kach and Kanehai are US designated foreign terrorist organizations. Um, it's remarkable how little attention that's getting. Um, so we have the shorter, shorter time, so I wanna to come to all three of you. So I'm gonna ask all of you to be a little, a little bit more brief. Natasha, I wanna start with you. Americans, <laughs> Americans have played this outsized role. American-born immigrants to Israel, particularly on the right, particularly in the settlement movement, not just Kanehai, but Baruch Goldstein and the people around them. I mean, this is not new. Why? Why do you think this is the case? Why do you think American Jews are in some ways the leading of the, of the harder right-wing views and why have they, they had such a an, such an huge impact in Israel? Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a massive question, but I'll try to, I'll just try to distill it. Um, you know, I think there's a few things at play. I do think that there is, um, you know, I think there's something which is native to the US uh, in, in terms of this, in terms of this um, phenomenon, you know, there is, to put it, you know, I suppose euphemistically, the, the United States is a very bubbly political culture. Um, there, there is a, a very kind of histrionic strand of, 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 of political style running through this country and through the history of this country. And I think, you know, the roots of that histrionic style have its, you know, are, are actually in, in Protestantism. Um, but this kind of, it's sort of seeped into the American political mainstream. And I think, you know, anybody who grows up here is kind of exposed to that and imbibes that. And, you know, that's my, that's my observation um, as an immigrant. And I think that kind of, um, tendency then combines with this sort of very exciting um, messianic, you know, religious promise um, for, you know, action and fulfillment and redemption um, in the state of Israel. And I think that's a really powerful combination. And what ends up happening is you have American Jews who, you know, especially American Jewish men, although American Jewish women as well, who, who kind of, um, are seeking that extra extra mile to go in their, their kind of political and social life. And it, that extra mile is, is in Israel. And they see that as really the only place that they can kind of fulfill what they view as, um, you know, their religious and political obligations um, to what they see as redeeming the land of Israel. So it, it tends to be people who are either outcasts or on the fringe of American Jewish society who, who make this trek and then end up being on sort of on the political fringes in Israel as well. But these are political fringes that have very, very strong ties to the political mainstream and have very strong representation um, in the Israeli parliament. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll let the others have a, have a bit of a say. Um, and maybe we'll have a few more minutes to talk about it in the Q&A as well. Thanks, and that, that could be an entire separate webinar as well. Yeah. I'd be fascinated to, to attend. Um, Shaul, coming to you, um, again, looking more at the US. So last time it looked like there might be Kahanas going into government in the, the last election. You saw a fair amount of pushback from American Jewish mainstream legacy organizations. This time, not so much. <laughs> um, you wanna talk about why you think that's changed as it actually even seems more likely this time that they're going to end up in the Knesset, if not in the cabinet? Yes, yes. Well, uh, in part because I think there's a certain segment of the American Jewish community that feels 
fine about it. But I guess the real question is what about those that don't? I think that this is a much larger question. Um, I think that uh, what we're witnessing is a deep crisis in liberal Zionism in America or two-statist Zionism. I think that the, the reality of uh, the death of the two-state solution is something that liberal Zionist America have not been able to absorb because they can't really think of what Zionism means anymore without that. Whereas in Israel, especially among the settlers, um, I think the, the, the thinking is that the two-state solution is dead. And I think one of the things to, you know, to, since we're getting to the end to get some positive note, I think there's actually some fascinating um, thinking going on among settlers about one state. Um, some of them obviously on the far right, but there's some really interesting thinking around people like Rav Shagar and Rav Nachum Fruman and some of these people who are willing to say, actually the Holy Land and the state are not necessarily fused and we can think about what it would mean um, to kind of separate those two things. And, and, you know, and the reason that there's such interesting thinking going on is that they've come to the conclusion that two states is not going to happen. I think, I think liberal Zionism is stuck because it can't think beyond two states. And so in terms of the question of, let's say, people like Smotrich or Ben Gvir, I, I think it's paralysis. I think they don't know what to say. Right, they can't really come out strongly against it because they feel like they are the bulwark in America to support Israel. But it's another realization that the image around which the entire liberal Zionist structure has been has grown over the last 30 years is simply no longer relevant. So here, you know, I think you see the reaction that people had to Peter's one state. Um, um, essay in Jewish currents, right? There's, a, there's, there's simply an inability to think beyond two states, and this is, this is for me, um, uh, a, a result of a certain kind of paralysis. And I think the inability, yes, of course, people like Ben Gavir. It's easy for people like to, to, to be against people like Ben Gavir. The question is, what about people like Gantz? Not even talking about Lieberman, right? I mean, what does it mean to be against the center? Liberal Zionists can't get their head around that because in the, the truth of the matter is on the question of, of the occupation, I don't even like to use the term anymore because I don't think it exists, but on the question of the occupation, Gantz is not really that much different than any of the others. So at that point, what does the liberal Zionist do? Again, this would be a conversation we could have a whole separate webinar about and maybe we will. Um, Amjad, you're gonna get the last word. I wanna ask you to make some predictions um answered questions so the first one is do you think that kahanas are going to make it into the knesset or into the cabinet this time and and assuming they make it in do you think they're going to play an important role in policy making an overt role not just the mainstreaming of the ideas but an overt role as kahanas going forward that's question number one you can write these down question number two assuming they do make it into knesset do you think there's going to be any kind of backlash in Israel? Will this be that, that moment when people say, holy crap, what have we done? Or does it just become the Overton window now just shifts further right? Um, and do you have any predictions? You have like five minutes to answer this. Do you have any predictions about the longer term trajectory in Israeli society? Are we getting, you know, it has to get to the bottom before it can come back up. Are we getting to a point where things is now so, so blatant 
the sort of illiberalism, racist, supremacist side of this, that you can finally start to see it pushed back when we couldn't, or does this just mean it keeps, just keeps, you know, steamrolling forward? That's it. All right, let's go through them. Uh, and sorry, I didn't bring my crystal ball for the predictions, but I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my best educated guesses. Um, so the quick, the quick summary is that so far the average polls are indicating that the religious Zionist party, which, which can, you know, is led by Smotrich and has been veered the open economist, might get possibly between four to five seats. This is the current kind of uh, guess. And as Natasha mentioned earlier, I think Netanyahu, because he's also playing a role in trying to get people to vote for that party because he's thinking about the larger coalition game, there's a very likely chance that, that this might happen in some form or another. Um, in terms of whether or not that will equate to power, I, you know, there, a lot of people are predicting that it's more likely to have a fifth election than we will have a government. But in the event that somehow the numbers are pulled together, um, the expectation is that they is that the that the Congress will be given quite a bit of power because if the political battles are right now within the right, within from the center to the to the extreme right, and and because they're very splintered into all these different parties, the extent of the concessions. Um, and the portfolios that have to be given to kind of maintain the loyalty of a group like religious, the religious Zionist slate is going to have to be quite substantial. This has already happened before with figures like Smotrich and with figures like Bennett. And so this might have to be the case as well, and even more so in, in this occasion. But we'll see whether or not, again, the numbers can play out for it. The second question um, in regards to if there'll be backlash if the, if the cons come in, again, the educated guess is maybe to say that there will be a bit of backlash for a little bit but eventually it will just kind of be accepted and normalized. Um, we've seen this again with many other figures, you know, not just Lieberman, but also people like Smartrich who, you know, essentially espouse a lot of the things that, uh, that someone like Benigvir says, and they were eventually accepted and tolerated. And after a few years time, they're no longer even the most extreme on the spectrum. Um, and again, this comes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, the world not imposing any of these kind of, any of these consequences. Israelis aren't imposing consequences on them and nor, and nor will the world. In fact, they'll just accept Figures, even people like Ayelet Shaked and her politics, and you know, the, eventually they become like official people in the, in the global political sphere. Um, so this is concerning in its own right. And in the third, the third question about you know what what is Khanism like beyond the elections? Uh, the short answer is that either it's going to remain as right wing as it is, or it's just going to get even more right wing. Uh, there is almost no indication whatsoever that there's any movement or any force in Israeli politics trying to push society and the discourse, you know, so back to the center left, so to speak. There's no force uh, being able to do that, uh, except for the attempts of these small parties like Labour, even the joint list is trying to create some sort of alternative. But again, they're only like, you know, combined together, they're only a sixth of the political power in the Knesset, so to speak. Um, and there's just no reason or incentive, as far as most Israelis are concerned, to push back to that center left. Again, the, the more that Netanyahu is able to normalize a lot of the right wing and far right politics and to carry it out, and even things like annexation, which you know was already de facto the case, and now you know you can openly say legally, and, and beyond like a few criticisms, they were very close to uh, uh, implementing uh, you know Dehori annexation. Uh, and maybe in, in the next couple of years time, you might see it actually being applied and it already is being applied in many respects. You know, it doesn't have to have, there's not really a dramatic law that's doing it, but there are other mechanisms, including laws that are, that are implementing it. Um, and this again, comes back to the fact that the right has a very clear ideology and discourse. And as long as Israelis can see that they're able to win their, you know, Jewish superiority, Jewish privileges, uh, security control from the river to the sea, why not continue with the right wing? 
there is no reason to, to stray from the current path. Um, and again, as long as the world is gonna keep, gonna keep enabling this and saying, we're not, you know, we're not putting, we're not holding Israel to account for this increasingly almost fascistic uh, trend towards what the identity of Israel as a state and the regime that's gonna be operating from the river to the sea and perhaps beyond, um, we're gonna be seeing this, uh, this worsening shift. Thanks. It, it strikes me listening to you, you know, one of the things that I've thought about over the years is the, the enormous success of the Israeli right, and this applies in the US as well to some extent, to frame its agenda in very clear moral values terms, which you don't compromise on morals and values, whereas the left has always sought to frame it in terms of interest, right? So if you make peace, then we think benefits will accrue. And if you don't make peace, all these terrible things might happen. And the fact is the terrible things haven't happened and the possibility of benefits of accruing, they've accrued regardless of making peace. It, it's a much weaker platform to be sitting on than if you go and read Meyer Kahane, we were talking before the webinar started about My Challenge, which is one of his more tepid books, but, but a quite thoughtful treatise. And he's really, there's something very powerful about saying unabashedly, these are my values, this is what I believe, it's right and wrong, it's black and white, and everything flows seamlessly from that. I'm not a hypocrite, I'm someone who says very clearly what I mean. Um, and and it, it's certainly a challenge to a left that hasn't been able to articulate things nearly as powerfully at any point. So. With that, we are going to close. We are on time. It's 1230 um, in Washington, DC. Thank you so much, panelists. Natasha, Amjad, Shoal. This was a remarkable conversation. We appreciate it very much. So with that, I will let you all go. Thank you so, so much and goodbye.